Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, and in this episode, we are talking about sex, about consent about assault, and about a book that looks at the narratives around all of these subjects, topics that we don't talk about very much, the grey areas that often lurk in the shadows. You know, when, when people are talking on TikTok about like, oh yeah, like choke someone or like this person choked me, it's like, well, if it's not consensual, then it's sexual assault. And actually the law in England and Wales is really clear on that. There is a threshold of violence that you can consent to and choking strangulation is beyond that. That was the voice of my guest today, Rachel Thompson there. And I should mention that this episode discusses sexual assault and sexual violence and content that some listeners may find triggering or even distressing. But it does explore really important themes that rarely get discussed elsewhere. So we do hope you can stay with us. Thompson's book, Rough, which is a new non-fiction work exploring the narratives of sexual violence that, as I mentioned earlier, we don't often talk about. And maybe you had a bad sexual experience in your past and never addressed it for actually what it was, pushing it to the back of your mind or even blaming yourself. We're talking about those grey areas, violations. Um, as women and girls, we sometimes have sexual experiences that we don't have words for that don't seem to fit with how we understand and perceive sexual assault. And the author of Rough says the way we talk about topics such as sex, consent and assault aren't fit for purpose anymore. The book contains really powerful testimony from 50 women and non-binary people. It's a book that shines a light on the sexual violence that takes place in our bedrooms and beyond, sometimes at the hands of people we know, trust or even love. So I talked to the author, Rachel Thompson, about violations such as stealthing, non-consensual choking and non-consensual rough sex acts that our culture is only starting to recognise as sexual violence. Rachel Thompson is a writer, journalist, podcaster and, as I said, the author of Rough, How Violence has found its way into the bedroom and what we can do about it. As a journalist, Rachel specialises in reporting on sex, relationships and gender. She's the senior culture reporter at Mashable and has written for the Sunday Times, CNN, Elle and many others. We talk about some of the challenging subjects in her book, challenging but very important ones. And I began by asking Rachel why she wanted to explore these often hidden and difficult to talk about issues. I started researching around the time of the Me Too movement. I just, I felt like there was a, a kind of a conversation that 
was sort of happening, but not quite happening in that people were talking about something called grey areas. And I wanted to know, okay, what do we mean by grey areas? Because there's, there was a lot of like conversation online about like, oh, there's no such thing as a grey area. And I found that I was like, I understand, you know, the point that you're making here, but also I think it is going to require a bit more nuance. And so I started to think about my own grey area, what I would deem grey area experiences. Um, and I sort of like, I took a few days to just sort of like think back to, um, I think I just turned 30 when I was researching this and I started to think back to sort of like 10 years ago, maybe a little longer. And just when I was at university, when I was a teenager and some of those like early experiences that, that I had. And I, and I thought back to one particular experience that I had always just called sort of bad sex right and it was just something that oh you know it was just a bad sexual experience at the time I don't think I would have called it that because the narrative I think amongst all of my friends was oh you know like everyone's just having loads of casual sex and like you know that's what all the young people are doing I think I sound old when I say that (laughs) but you know it's like I just I felt a kind of almost peer pressure to be like (laughs) doing the cool thing which was having all of this young carefree casual sex with no strings and you know um racking up as many sexual partners and and that was a sign of I guess being a cool person (laughs) and that was a misconception on my part because I mean lots of research has come out um there was a report last week even that says that this is a major source of anxiety for a lot of British people of all age groups actually you know that um basically people think everyone else is having way more sex than they are and in reality they're not like people are just having you know just a standard and some people aren't having sex at all and a lot of young people are having way less sex so statistically we know that actually this isn't true and uh, this was all sort of like anxiety and trying to trying to just I don't know be a cool young person at university um but yeah so I um on one and I was really I was like very very inexperienced I was a very innocent you know when I left left home to go to university I think I'd maybe had sex once and that was just like a one night stand and so I was very very inexperienced and I hadn't had very good sex education you know I'd gone to a state school I think my sex education sort of amounted to some very embarrassed looking teacher putting a condom over a banana and then just showing us some pictures of some really gnarly looking STIs and us thinking like great well (laughs) that looks horrifying um so yeah I was really ill-equipped um you know I didn't really know anything at all about consent I just thought this is you know something that is just a chat at the start or not even a chat you're just like do you consent yes then everything after that is you know do whatever you want um and I think that that particular thing that particular misconception misunderstanding did me a real disservice in terms of those early sexual experiences really up until I would say my mid-20s because I didn't know that you know each individual sex act required consent and it's not just that yes at the start and then everything goes you know it's you know if you want to do something different if you want to switch positions it's everything requires like is this okay and it doesn't have to be like a very formal do you consent it's a you know is this okay like can we do this you know it's there are sexier ways of doing it and we know from like you know connell and normal people that it can be kind of hot actually to ask for consent 
anyway, I digress. So, um, you know, this, this experience that, um, I talked about in the first chapter of Rough, um, it took me a really, really long time essentially to, to realize that what had happened that night was actually sexual assault. And, you know, I had basically, um, I'd had a one night stand with this guy and I really liked him. Um, but he wasn't, I don't think he particularly treated me very nicely. You know, he'd sort of gone, he was blowing hot and cold, sometimes replying to my messages, sometimes sending me a sort of you up message, like at two in the morning, which I'd inevitably see, you know, the next day. Um, but I, because I, I have epilepsy and I had had that first, um, that first night that we'd had together, I had had a seizure. And so I felt this vulnerability that he had witnessed that he'd, you know, called the ambulance and walked me to my door because I literally couldn't remember where I lived after having this seizure. And so, you know, the bar is in hell, I guess, you know, it's, this is really, we're talking about the bare minimum of like human compassion. And, you know, of course, like, it was nice to be looked after in that moment. But, you know, what's what's the alternative just letting someone have a seizure and then just fend for themselves but I re- I just interpreted that perhaps because I had again very little experience but also had been shown very little kindness by um, any men outside of my own family you know so I was like wow this guy's great like what an absolute hero um which of course was not really true at all and um and yeah so I just um had this uh, idea of him being a way nicer person than he actually was. And of course, I wanted to see him again after that. And, um, and so when we did see each other, um, we went, we, I mean, this was when we were at university and I had a roommate. So I was sharing my room with a girl. He was sharing his room with a boy. And, you know, so we decided to go off into the, into the woods. And, uh, and I just thought we were just going to have, you know, sex. But um, it just sort of took a weird turn and he ended up sort of straddling my chest, um, which I found I couldn't breathe, essentially. And I did not, I felt like I didn't sign up for this. And also I can't breathe and I feel like I might die. And in that moment, I was just like, oh my God, I can't breathe. What am I going to do? And I didn't think to sort of like, I just sort of froze in that moment. And I didn't think to be like, hey, like, or slap him or something just to alert him in a like non-verbal way because I couldn't speak basically um I just sort of was polite and sort of you know it's amazing the things that women do when they just want to be polite and you know be the cool girl and be you know chill and um I don't I don't understand where that came from but I mean like subsequently therapists have told me it's really that freeze reaction is really normal um so you know but yeah in that moment I froze but um you know in the aftermath of that I sort of um you know I felt quite degraded and and violated but I would not have admitted that to anybody even myself I suppose I sort of just was like well you know that wasn't exactly what I signed up for and that wasn't really what I had in mind but you know And I still liked the guy. That's the sad thing. I still liked him. I still wanted to hang out with him after I saw, like after after that had happened. And that's quite sad, I think. I just think, oh God, like, you know, poor like 19 year old Rachel just didn't have a clue and hadn't been well equipped with, you know, not only like base, the basics of consent, the basics of like everything you should know before you 
have sex, but also like self-worth and like how I deserve to be treated and like the kind of people I should be letting into my life and like the kind Mm. of behavior that I should be tolerating. So there was a lot that, you know, a lot that fed into that. You mentioned me too there. So it's like six years ago now or something Mm. like that. And it feels like, as far as I remember, that was a time when many of us were looking at those gray areas. We're looking back over sexual experiences we'd had that maybe we'd buried or that we'd put down to just being a woman and being in the world. And that's what you put up with. And really, a lot of us, I think, had had to kind of face up to things that were, you know, from maybe, I suppose what you describe in the book as unacknowledged sexual assault or times when we just felt, oh, that was a weird night or didn't really enjoy that sexual experience, but it was grand and I'll just move on. Uh, and these things seem to really bubble to the surface. And I think that's at the crux of your of your reason for writing the book is so that people can open up and face up to these things and, and be more aware of what it is they do want in in sex. So talk to me about more about those, those gray areas and this idea that one of the experts you talk to says that women um, are sort of socialized almost to be the sexual pleasure givers, providers, something that, you know, women are something that sex is done to rather than them being an active sort of a part in the pleasure seeking aspect of it. That's a really important part of the book, I think. Definitely. And yeah, so you talk about sort of um, the unacknowledged rape, unacknowledged sexual assault um, aspect. And that was a key, I think that's the, essentially one of two things going on in the grey areas. I sort of, when I began to sort of dig into it and speak to academics, speak to, you know, researchers in this area, they, you know, I discovered, I hadn't heard this term before, unacknowledged rape. And I thought, hang on a sec, like that actually d- is what happened to me. You know, it took me 10 years to realise, to get, to have the language to uh, define what had happened to me as something other than just a bad sexual experience and realize actually this meets all of the legal you know requirements as well as the you know societal requirements of uh, sexual assault um and and actually what i heard from these experts is that it's really common actually it's really really common um for for women to to essentially not immediately call what what has happened to them to not immediately be like that was sexual assault or that was rape and of course that does happen you know a lot of people do also realize you know yes okay what's just happened to me is rape is sexual violence um but an awful lot of people also have that delayed reaction and sometimes that comes from you know a lack of education a lack of knowing that certain things constitute sexual violence um i think that also the you know the lack of i think that the law lagging behind in certain areas and not recognizing certain things as sexual assault also plays a role because that you know is sort of that seeps into society if if the law doesn't recognize something as sexual assault then people in society are like well it doesn't really count and it's like well actually is the law just the barometer of morality no yeah um but a lot of people you know i think it's it's also just sort of is a kind of trauma response to to have that sort of like, okay, I'm just going to put this to the back of my mind, you know, and never think about it ever again. Um, and yeah, it, it takes people a long time sometimes to recognise that, that what's happened to them, yeah, is sexual violence. And then it informs how their sexual life continues as well, because there's one case study in your book of a woman who I think it was her first sexual experience with the person who then went on to become her boyfriend for three or four years. She was actually asleep, I think, when he had sex with her. And she didn't even at the time equate it with 
an assault or a rape. You know, how could she possibly consent when she wasn't even conscious? And yet she went on to continue to have a relationship with, with that person. And there's there's case studies in the book that sort of really uh, illuminate what what you're talking about. You also look a lot at sexual behaviours that have become more normalised and more common. And I did an article in the Irish Times last year, which was talking to a lot of young women and men and people of all types about their sexual activity, particularly during the pandemic, where it seemed that this stuff became very much prevalent on TikTok about vanilla sex. So vanilla sex being very ordinary missionary position. You're not kinky at all. And then if you were just doing that, there was something wrong with you, that there should be some kind of... um choking involved and this uh, various aspects of BDSM that were coming into it. And these young people were telling me that this was sort of very regularly happening in their sex lives. And sometimes they didn't like it, but they would continue with it. Or sometimes they seem to be saying they liked it. But I really wondered, did they really like it? Or was it about, again, pleasing the person that they were they were with? I just wanted to read out actually a couple of um, case studies, if that's OK, because I think People, there's some people listening might not be familiar with this stuff because, again, it's very influenced by porn. I think porn culture, you say that in the book as well. Um, and so there's a, a woman called Abigail. Um, she says, I went back to his afterwards with the intention of having sex and during sex, he choked me without my consent, was extremely rough and hit parts of my body. She says she was more shocked than frightened when it happened. When he was choking me, I didn't have the breath to tell him to stop and he seemed to be enjoying it. So I didn't want to make a fuss. Uh, and that's so, so let's talk first about the choking thing, because that's that's very prevalent and not something that everyone wants. And as you say in the book, a very high risk sexual activity. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think talking about, first of all, because you mentioned TikTok just then, and I think it's really important to note that, you know, we are living in actually a sex misinformation crisis. And TikTok is playing a really big role in that and not for the better, I might add. Um, there's a lot of kink educators who are really concerned about misinformation specifically relating to to kink, to BDSM. Um, and, you know, people who are not experts, people who are not sex educators, who do not, who are not members of this community, who are essentially spreading misinformation on TikTok and also on other social media sites, you know, Instagram as well. Um, and, you know, that is reaching young people who perhaps, you know, um, haven't, haven't had good sex education. I think that's probably the case for a lot of young people. Um, but also maybe don't have, um, essentially what we would call like porn literacy or like sex literacy, health literacy. Um, so those kind of important critical thinking skills that you would need in order to like discern who's actually an expert that you should be listening to and who's actually spreading misinformation. Um, and I think this, this sort of topic of vanilla sex being somehow less than uncool yeah Yeah. I think that this you can trace it back to a lot of these you know this TikTok misinformation um because vanilla sex it like that first of all like anyone in the BDSM community would probably tell you that there should never be any kind of hierarchy when it comes to you know whether one type of sex is better than the other like it's it's all good, I think, that, that most people would, I don't, you know, I'm sure maybe some people would disagree. But essentially, you know, what we should be, in terms of true sex, sex positivity and in terms of being, you know, reaching a sort of like point where we're able to speak freely and from a from an informed place, I think that moving away from this idea of there being a hierarchy of, of vanilla being somehow, you know, not as good as kinky sex, 
that is not true sex positivity and, you know, is misinformed. Um, and also the idea of like normativity of one thing being normal and one thing being not. Again, I think a lot of people in, in that space would, would sort of say that that's not, it's not a good, a good way to look at sex. Um, but yeah, I think a major problem coming out of, um, TikTok and also coming out of, um, just a lot of online discussion about sex that is forming part of this sex misinformation crisis. I think the idea, um, the, of, of choking, um, being a really common thing in sex that also doesn't require consent. Um, and I find that really concerning. And I know that also porn culture, as you mentioned, like porn culture does feed into this because again, um, I think a lot of people treat, and we, we know statistically there's loads of research that because young people don't have, you know, robust sex education, many don't have any at all, actually. They turn to porn as an educational tool um, when in fact porn is designed as entertainment. Um, it's, you know, fantasy. It's, you know, it's not being made with, educate like education in mind they're not thinking like oh we really you know the responsible thing to do here would be to show consent negotiation would be to show all of the safety protocols that's just not a thing that porn you know like the people in the porn industry are thinking about because it's entertainment you know and um so yeah it's not real life and i think there and i think that's the danger of you know and that's the knock-on effect of not teaching young people about about sex. You know, the, all of the sort of basic tenets of sex that we should be that we should know before we even think about having sex. That is that's that's the knock-on effect because then you have all of these very curious young people thinking, okay, hang on a sec, like how do I, you know, how do I give a blowjob? How do I do a hand job? All of these things, you know, and they're turning to porn as their sort of teacher and. And then they see things in porn that, um, you know, like a really common trope is choking in porn. That's that's become a really prevalent thing in mainstream porn. Um, but because, of course, it's entertainment, it's not shown with all of the consent and safety protocols that would that would typically well, that would always happen um, when it's practiced, when breath play, as it's called in the BDSM community, when that is is. Um, you know, carried out in real life by these communities that are coming from a place of, you know, that informed risk. And so that's how I feel this has infiltrated the sort of sex culture that we're talking about. And so, yeah, it's really, it's really dangerous because choking is a high risk act. And we know that there's research that they've done, academics have done research into the dangers of this. You know, it can, um, it can cause strokes it can cause neurological damage seizures i mean we know also it, it can and has resulted in death you know it's like it's not something to be entered into lightly and i think you know breath mm. play when it's practiced in the bdsm community it is practiced with um first of all consent and also with all of these safety uh, protocols, you know, like people researching the anatomy of a neck to ensure that they're not, you know, cutting off blood flow, cu cutting off, uh, you know, an entire air supply, all of these things. But it's, mm. it's something that requires like complex research and like, you need to be informed. You need to know what you're doing. Mm. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. What I found fascinating as well talking to these young people was that um, it's very much uh, in these sexual behaviors, the men dominating the women. Like when I would ask them, oh, do you choke your partner? And they would go, no, of course not. You know, it's never the women choking the men. It's it's this constant thing of, you know, the man dominating. And there's almost there was a sense of one young woman said to me, well, you know, I feel like my partner, like in, in the world we live in now, women are more equal. We're all the same, you know, but it's nice in the bedroom for the man to be able to dominate. This was actually what one, one woman said to me. The other thing I found really interesting talking to them was about their lack of um necessarily feeling like they needed to orgasm during sex. Like a lot of the time, these young people were very much like, well, as long as he gets off, as long as he has his orgasm, then that's the sexual activity uh, finished. But just going back to the the choking aspect, you have a statistic in the book, which is from the UK, but I imagine there must be a similar trend in Ireland as well. Um, I think it's over one third of women have experienced non-consensual strangulation or choking in their sex lives, which is, you know, a lot of people. It's a lot. It's alarming, really, because, you know, and it's that element of the, you know, non-consensual. That is sexual assault. And, you know, we're not talking about, you know, when when people are talking on TikTok about like, oh, yeah, like, you know, this, like, choke someone or like this person choked me. It's like, well, if it's not consensual, then it's sexual assault. And actually, the law in England and Wales is really clear on that. There is a threshold of violence that you can consent to and choking strangulation is beyond that. And I think that one of the really important things that when I when I was writing this book, you know, I wanted to I wanted to explore some of the violations that people weren't, you know, people weren't referring to as violations. They weren't referring to as um, sexual violence. And I think that this is one of them. I think that in our conversations, you know, we we often, you know, we talk about just choking as a sort of catch all. Um, and I think a lot of the time, actually, what we're talking about and what we're talking about in this instance, we're talking about sexual assault. And um, and I don't think many people, I don't think many young people who've maybe gone through this, maybe, you know, young women, they, I don't think they realise that actually what's happened to them constitutes sexual violence. And mm. um, there's that that lack of education, really. So part of my, part of the work I try and do, obviously part of the purpose of the book, but also um, 
in my work at Mashable, I, I, you know, try and debunk a lot of these sex myths, a lot of these, you know, the myths that we have, that, you know, that I think really young people need to know. Let's talk for a minute about some of our listeners will know about, which came up in the amazing series, I May Destroy You, which is stealthing. I'm just going to give a little case study that you have in the book. Uh, Daisy says she was having a lovely time. She was on top and she felt in control. Until that is, she became aware that the condom had come off. The man she was having sex with kept going, however, as if nothing had happened. Daisy says that she wasn't very experienced. She didn't feel she could assert herself in the situation. I remember thinking, well, I'm on top, so I must be in control of this. This must be fine as well, because it's not like he was pinning me down or anything. But I just did not feel able to say, hang on, I think the condom has come off. Then he finished and he was hanging onto my hips, he said. And I just said, did you just come inside me without a condom? And he smiled at her in a way she describes as, ah, shucks, expression, before saying, oh, whoops, sorry. It was his next act that fully revealed the non-accidental nature of the violation. He did this really hokey thing, Daisy says. He kind of looked to one side where he'd clearly taken it off and tossed it. And he was like, oh, there it is. So this thing of stealthing where people are um, either pretending not to have condoms or um, making sure they get rid of them during the sex act, because that was another thing that these young women said to me was that a lot of the time they're hearing men just saying, oh, it doesn't feel as good. I don't want to do this. It's 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 a very interesting phenomenon. And the stealthy way that they're they're doing it is, is so dangerous and worrying. Again, yeah, this and so, yeah, this non-consensual condom removal stealthing, as we sort of saw in I May Destroy You, it this again, it's sexual violence, it's sexual assault and rape, you know. And I think that it was just so disturbing to, I mean, that story um, that you just read out, it's so alarming as well, just to, to feel... To, for the, the, these young women don't feel that they can also say anything that the, again it's it sort of circles back to this prioritization of male pleasure in that moment um but yeah that that this is something that um i know that a lot of a lot of viewers who watched i may destroy you actually realized that you know they had experienced this and it was really validating to see that on screen because they were like oh i this has happened to me and this was something that was a source of complete trauma and violation and anxiety, you know, because obviously with, with, you know, a, with a lack of protection, a lack of barrier protection, there's all kinds of anxiety, even, you know, even if it's completely accidental, you, you know, and this happens in real life, you know, we know that you have pregnancy scares, you worry about STIs, you worry about all of these things. And, you know, you, you had, there was there was an interview, I think it was in British Vogue, um, where um, a journalist spoke to um, women who watched I May Destroy You and saw, yeah, this this unfold on screen of like, oh, this happened to me. Oh, there's a word for this. Oh, my God, it's sexual assault. And it, and again, it circles back to that unacknowledged rape, um, unacknowledged sexual assault of us not having the language and the knowledge to know that an experience of violation counts as violence and um and and so you have this delayed onset and i think that that i found it really striking that you know these women some of them were watching with like husbands boyfriends partners and were telling them for the first time like hey this happened to me and and talking about all of the impact it had on them you know i there was one woman who said that she was terrified that she had hiv after it happened and you know, and to feel, and that, and that some of them said that they felt dirty, and you know, they felt like a slut and things like that, and you know, that's the impact of this. Um, and again, I think when I 
when I started talking about stealthing um, around the time that my book was coming out, a lot of people hadn't heard this term. And it's, it's, you know, I think I May Destroy You's done a, done a brilliant thing in that it's, it has raised awareness. But for people who haven't seen that particular show, there is still that knowledge gap. And I think that, I think it's important that, you know, like that we talk about contraception in our consent education, that young people know that, you know, actually this is, it's, I mean, legally it's called conditional consent and the condition that you consent to is, you know, using a condom or using whatever barrier protection, but that, that is the condition of consent. And if that, if that condition is not respected, not honoured, then it's non-consensual and therefore it's rape or sexual assault. Yeah, I mean, and another thing I'd love you to talk about a bit, uh, which I find, I mean, grimly fascinating is that like if I was walking down the street and a man exposed his penis to me on the street, I could ring the police and it'd be a very clear case of a sexual violation. Right. And there would be, you know, uh, a legal recourse for that. But um, what's known as cyber flashing, where people are more, I suppose, more commonly called unsolicited dick pics. I just hate that term. But anyway, uh, cyber flashing. Um, This is happening so commonly to, I mean, I have to put my hands up being of a certain age in my 50s. It's never happened to me. I hope it never happens to me. But I know that for a lot of young women, it is a very common experience and not something that I I wonder if people even become sort of uh, inured to it, immune to it. But talk to us about cyber flashing and and the sort of attempts to make that be um, legally kind of, you know, uh, wrong. Yeah. So there's um, currently a campaign um, that the dating app um, Bumble, um, they are sort of um, championing and there's a lot of other journalists in in the UK like Sophie Gallagher, um, who have sort of done a lot of um, reporting and campaigning to to get the attention of lawmakers to encourage them to to make this to make cyber flashing illegal because it's something that happens particularly on public transport um using the airdrop feature on a lot of iPhones um and I you know when I started reading about this I thought oh my god I need to change my settings immediately um because I didn't realize that my airdrop settings were set to anyone can send me anything and um but, you know, that's, I think, I mean, who who's looked into that? You know, I think it's common for a lot of us to not realise. But, um, yeah, what what essentially what was happening, and I spoke to a few people um, when I was researching the book, um, that, you know, women late at night would, empt- you know, they'd enter a, an empty tube carriage or there'd be like a couple of other people in there and they'd be deliberately targeted by a person that had obviously clocked them and then sent them an explicit photo, usually of their genitals. Um, and the thing about airdrop is that it often um, flashes up a preview of the image on your screen before you even accept the image. Um and so it was really disturbing, really threatening, because, you know, if it, if, as you say, if it had been in, in real life, like if it had been a non-digital act, then, you know, it would, that people would take it seriously. But because I think because it's a digital violation, there is that, the, the government is not, the government in, in the UK certainly is not keeping pace with the way that digital sex crimes are being created. You know, they're being, the, the fast-paced way in which it's evolving and i and i think that that's alarming and that's um i mean they're still i don't know they're still c- campaigning to get cyber flashing included in the digital harms bill i think there may be an update on it i think it that i think it will be included in that 
Because there was a change in the law around upskirting, which is another um, activity that, again, probably the law wasn't keeping pace with. But now it's illegal in in, um, Britain. Isn't that right? Exactly. Yeah. Gina Martin, um, an activist, um, she campaigned and successfully got the law changed um, in England and Wales. And so there have been uh, there's been a massive, um, I think, uptick in, in convictions for that. And. Um, and that's, you know, again, for, for people that aren't familiar with the term upskirting, um, it's when a person um, takes a photo up up a person's uh, skirt or basically of of their genitals um, without their consent. Um, and, you know, it, it happens on public transport, it happens in public places. In the case of Gina Martin, um, it happened at a music festival. And, um, you know, it's also there's a term called down blousing as well, which is, you know, as the term might, you know, no, that's the first time I've heard. That. Yeah. So that's the, you know, the equivalent for when it's, you know, when it's basically someone taking About a picture of your breasts. Yeah. yeah. So um, and yeah, so it took a while again for the law to keep up with that. Um, and yeah, it's just it's I think that it shows how out of touch lawmakers are that you know we're having to come to them often being like hey like there's loads and loads of victims that are like dealing with this and you need to do something about it um but yeah so i mean it's it's good news at least that it's on the you know that cyber flashing is on their horizons and you know it's sort of going to be changed hopefully now, you did mention our um, amazing Connell and Marianne and normal people a bit earlier. And I was very pleased to see them getting a good starring role in your book as um, in a more positive sense. And that you talk about sort of a new way of, of portraying sex, because really that sex scene, that first sex scene between uh, Connell and Marianne in episode two of Normal People was unlike anything that had ever been on the telly before in that we saw a young woman who'd never had sex before having her first sexual experience with a young man who was concerned about her and cared about her and at every stage was saying, is this okay? And it was absolutely mind-blowing because the idea that we'd just never seen it, we see them laugh, him fumbling with her bra, you know, a very normal um, sex scene that, I, you know, that uh, despite everything we've talked about, these these sex experiences do go on as well with all this terrible stuff that we've been talking about. Um, so is is that was normal people important, do you think, in terms of changing that narrative around consent and really showing what it can mean and how actually it can be very sexy? Yeah, I think it was a real conversation starter for a lot of people. And I think in a way I felt like I felt kind of uh, a touch of sadness and I think a lot of people did because it was like wow like this is actually the first time you know or one of the very few occasions that you can see actually consent negotiation happening on screen and it's portrayed in a way that's really sexy it's hot and it's you know it's respectful and you know it shows yeah like you say the awkwardness the sort of fumbling embarrassment that happens in sex that you don't you don't really often see on screen and I think that you know, that is really, that was just a wonderful thing to see. But again, I feel, I feel sad that, that that was, you know, it it took me until my, whatever it is, like early thirties to witness something like that on, on our screens. And I remember putting a tweet out around the time that I was researching the book and I'd, you know, we'd, normal people had been on our screens and everything. And I thought, hang on, has anyone got any other examples, um, you know, of, of really positive consent negotiations happening on screen. And and obviously that scene in Normal People came up, but a lot of people were really stumped and were like, the sad thing is, I can't think of any. And, I, you know, I know that, um, 
I think things are changing both, you know, I think both on screen and also behind the scenes, you know, with with the introduction of intimacy coordinators. I think that's really, really important because, you know, it can't just always be, a you know, it is important for us as viewers to see um, these positive examples of consent and and all of that. But you need to also make sure that you're practicing what you preach behind the scenes as well um with consent for the actors and making sure that they're not harmed by by those scenes um and i think that that was mm-hmm. a really those were really interesting conversations to have as well and you spoke to Ito O'Brien, who's the intimacy coordinator, who we've had on the podcast too. She's a brilliant woman and she's such a pioneer. And now she's training other people to, to be intimacy coordinators as well, which is wonderful. So I suppose like you, you, you finish the book or you try to explore in the, in the final sort of sections with how we go about changing our sexual culture. And it's, it's a big ask. And I'm not sure whether, you know, it's, it's probably too much of an ask for you to answer that. But at the same time, you do attempt to. And one part of it, I think very much what came clearly true to, for me is, is about our sex education, because our sex education in Ireland, woefully bad with a, with a sort of a, a Catholic theocracy kind of on top of it as well. But yours wasn't much better either in the UK, despite not having perhaps that religious influence as much. We're not taught about these minor and major acts of sexual violence. We're not talked about, to about sexual pleasure either. We're not talking about the fact that sex isn't just a penis and a vagina, that it's masturbation, that it's um, all sorts of other things that can go along with in the sexual spectrum. So um, is that somewhere that you do you think it could make a big difference if our if our sex education started from an earlier age to encompass all of these things that we've spoken about? I really think so. I think that education is key. Um, it is alarming. I think, you know, it's, I sit there and struggle sometimes because, you know, I look at what's happening in the UK at the moment and, you know, there's just been news that um, Rishi Sunak wants to um, do a review of sex education because um, there's this fear that, you know, young people are being exposed to inappropriate material and a lot of a lot of sex education charities reject this and say that this isn't the case. But, you know, sex education is under threat in, in the UK. And I find that really, really concerning because I'm like, you know, I would say that in many in many cases, it's falling short still to this day. And the fact that, you know, we're now threatened with the idea of it, you know, regressing somehow is even more alarming. I'm like, oh God, like, are we really going to go back in time um, but I do really think that education is key. I think, edu- you know, sex education needs to be um, inclusive. It needs to represent queer sex. It needs to talk about pleasure. Um, you know, it needs to talk about digital um, violations. It needs to talk about violence as well, sexual violence. People need to know about, you know, about the reality of consent. You know, I think there's some research by the Sex Education Forum that shows that I think it's something like 50% of young people have never, they never learned about um, you know, real life consent interactions. And I think that, you know, almost giving people a crib sheet of like, here's how to ask, you know, here's how to, you know, seek consent. Here are some non-awkward ways to go about that. Um, and breaking down, you know, the mechanics of it, of, you know, if you want to introduce oral sex, you should ask for consent. Like all of these really you know, what I would consider basic things, but we're just that aren't that young people are, are just going out into the world not knowing. Um, and I also think that um, porn literacy is a really important thing that um, I think young people, you know, I don't think the answer is 
limiting people's access to porn i i don't think it's realistic and i i just don't think that would be a good thing i think teaching young people porn literacy um and just sort of sex literacy in general would be a really important way to to combat this sex misinformation crisis and and the sort of the problems that we're seeing from porn I'm a big fan of Cindy Gallup and Make Love Not Poor. And I don't know if you've come across that, but she's wonderful because this is about real life sex. And, um, you know, it's about normal people having sex, literally going back to normal people. And that that is kind of like countering all the message. And there is ethical porn out there also. And another concept you you introduce in the book is ethical sex, that this is an idea that should be taught to, to young people. What is ethical sex? Sex where each person, whether it's a one night stand or whether it's a long term relationship, has a concern about the other human being that they're interacting with. And they don't see it as as something that they just can objectify the person or not treat them like a human being. I mean, it sounds very basic and normal, but it's it's clearly not happening in a lot of our sexual culture. Exactly. And, I, you know, it's it's it felt ridiculous to me. I was like, do I really have to spell out like, you know, be a good person? Like, it's just it felt very strange and unnatural to have to say that. But, you know, the reality is I think people almost feel like, you know, your your morality or your ethics or whatever, they stop at, at the door when you you're about to enter the bedroom. And, and, you know, that they feel almost like, I don't know, that they can't harm someone or you know and I think that yeah just carrying the the same values that you have in real life in your day-to-day interactions you know like you wouldn't if if you you know if you were helping a stranger in the street if you were having an interaction with someone in Sainsbury's or whatever like you wouldn't treat them with disrespect you wouldn't want any harm to come to them so how should how should sex be any different you know um and it's just carrying through those basic sort of like ethical tenets that should be common but sadly are not one part i really enjoyed near the end of the book as well is about how we need male allies because it's something that we talk a lot about on this podcast and how you know a lot of this conversation can be alienating for men or can make men feel like they're really which we okay to a certain degree they are the problem but to another degree you know they are as much a victim of kind of the patriarchy and the way they've been socialized too and that's really important to say but I loved um, your con- your um, talk with Liz Plank, the journalist who wrote a book about try- to encourage sort of more positive mas- masculinity and, and not keep talking about this toxic masculinity and how she helps young men kind of reflect on their own behavior rather than sort of tell them everything they're doing wrong. And she talks about how self-awareness and how helping young men to kind of look at what they're doing and why they're doing it. That really is a part of um, improving things as well. So that's, that's a really good thing. But in a world, just finally, in a world where we have Andrew Tate, thankfully locked up, we have all this, these, you know, this incel culture that Laura Bates has spoken about so well um, on this podcast and in her books. You know, are you still hopeful that the sexual culture can change, that all this talk and indeed your book and other commentators can make a difference. I mean, I'd like to end it on some kind of positive note. (laughs) Yeah, I think we have to be optimistic. We have, I do have hope. I I really, I believe that, you know, I I also don't think sex education stops when we're at school, right? And I do believe that, you know, I, I think our duty as if you are a sexually active adult, then, then you should keep, you know, keep a curious and open mind and, and you should have a desire to constantly want to learn new things and to, you know, just broaden your mind. And I just think that that to be sex positive requires, you know, that com- a constant education, a constant learning curve. And I think that that's a really important thing in, in you know, improving our sexual culture and coming at it from a place of curiosity and a willing, you know, a willingness to perhaps 
also look back on on past mistakes and think, you know, have I harmed someone? Have has my behaviour, um, you know, caused someone trauma? And and how can I avoid how can I avoid doing that? you know, going forward. Um, and I think that level of introspection um, is really, really important. And, you know, yeah, I believe in allyship. Um, and I think that that's also really important when we're just tackling everyday instances of misogyny, racism, and, you know, every everything else, every other form of discrimination. I think that, you know, we really need people to not to not be satisfied to remain in the status quo and to want to challenge the reality that is that is not good mm. enough at present you know yeah because i must congratulate you for the book um for leaving no stone unturned because there's some stuff in there about fat phobia during sex there's stuff about ableism there is a lot about the trans community as well so you really do look at every kind of discrimination and uh, that can go on um in terms of uh, the whole sexual area so it's it's a really important book and uh, as i said congratulations and hopefully um hopefully it will uh, contribute to a, a positive change in that whole area thanks rachel thank you that was rachel thompson there and the book is called rough how violence found its way into the bedroom and what we can do about it if you've any comments on what you've heard we're on social at it women's podcast or on email the women's podcast at irishtimes.com podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan, Aideen Finnegan and me, Roisin Ingle with JJ Vernon on sound. And that's it from me. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.